Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7am Novelist Passages of Summer edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are very difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from Nathaniel Miller, who is going to share the first pages of his debut novel, The Memoirs of Stockholm Sven. Good morning, Nathaniel. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for being on the show. Nathaniel Ian Miller's debut novel, The Memoirs of Stockholm Sven, I'm going to slip over that, Stockholm Sven, a number one indie next pick, was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and has been translated into multiple languages. He's written for newspapers in Wisconsin, New Mexico, Montana, and Colorado, for which he received multiple Associated Press Awards. He is also a former resident in the Arctic Circle Expeditionary Program. And if we have time to talk about that, I really want to talk about that because that sounds much more exciting than anything I have done. And he lives with his family on a farm in Vermont. Okay, Nathaniel, can you give us a quick summary of the book for our listeners? Sure. Uh, the book concerns a disaffected, alienated mill worker from Stockholm in the 19-teens who takes a mining contract in the archipelago of Spitsbergen or Svalbard as we call it now, or many many of us call it now, uh, midway some point between Norway and the North Pole. And quickly thereafter, his face is mutilated in a horrible mining accident, a landslide, avalanche. And um, he removes himself to an even more isolated place, a remote fjord in the northern part of the archipelago, where he learns to trap and spends the majority of his years. It's told as a memoir. It has a kernel of historical basis in that there's, you know, there was a real guy. I changed his last name, but we knew almost, mm. we, I knew almost nothing about him going into it and, and still, still know so little about him. But the book concerns his, his dawning and growing um, understanding of himself as, as not someone who can spend his life alone um, and mm. his found community and, and things like that as he grows into a more complete human being. Mm. Okay, wonderful. Okay, I'm gonna have you read the first few pages then. And for our listeners, you can find a link to these pages in our podcast notes so that you can follow along if you're more of a, a visual person. I know I myself am. Okay, go ahead, Nathaniel, let's hear it. Okay, prologue from a tiny cabin by the ocean. My name is Sven. To some, I am known as Stockholm Sven and to others, Sven One-Eye or Sven the Seal Fucker. I arrived in Spitsbergen in 1916. I was 32 years old and hadn't amounted to much. I have some sense of what is said about me by the few who might say anything at all, that I lived and trapped alone in the great bay and hunting grounds of Rodfjorden in the farthest north, that I was the pitiable victim of a mining accident, that I had irrepressible eccentricities and abjured society. This is all true, in a way, and yet less than true. And let it be struck from the record that I was a talented and enthusiastic cook, as some have claimed, for that is a flagrant falsehood. 
I expended the greater part of my life in Spitsbergen, an island archipelago due north of Norway, whose uppermost reaches are but a handful of degrees from the invisible pole. These days, the place is called Svalbard by politicians, generals, and cartographers. Or, by all but the most precious few, it is called nothing, for the age of exploration is long over. And if Spitsbergen still dwells in the popular imagination, it exists only as a faint echo, a half-remembered word. People might wonder, I suppose, or do I only fancy that they wonder, how I kept myself busy those many solitary decades. Perhaps they think a life is made up of milestones, great monoliths rising above an endless roving sea that both washes and abrades them. I think that is rubbish. Few memoirs are written, and fewer still are read. So in most cases, we must rely upon only two or three markers, often dubious, when peering through the grimy glass into someone else's existence. A life is substantially more curious and mundane than the reports would have it. And in truth, though I am known within the tiny dewdrop circles of the unlikely few who know of me, as a solitary, unmatched Arctic hunter, I am no such thing, and I was seldom alone. This is my story. Part one. I was born Sven Ormsen, in Stockholm, of course. My father worked in a tannery, a profession for which I held very little respect until I began to toil with skins myself. My mother took care of me and my two sisters. There is nothing remarkable about this time of my life. I could hardly have been the only one who found the city stifling, the stench, the incessant noise, the human interaction. Because my family had little to spare, my sisters and I took on mill jobs as soon as we were able. I was never, shall we say, complacent about any of it. I did not allow that a life of menial drudgery in a filthy, stinking shithole was all I should expect. I believe my mother empathized with this, but she never would have said so. And yet, I wasn't one of those young men who believe they are destined for greatness. At the time, I had no interest in destiny. I knew I wasn't on the earth to please anyone, let alone God. I was just restless. National pride, military service, ribald songs, the sound of grown men laughing, air exchanged between several people in a tight space, they are all among the variety of things I found repellent. I suppose I still do. But they are also cherished staples of Swedish society. In the rather trite throes of alienation and disaffection, I turned instead, as so many youths before me have, to books. Should I call it there, Michelle? That sounds great. Oh, I love it. I love it. This is full of so much voice, and it's really wonderful to hear you read it. Um, and voice seems to be, I think, for a lot of agents and editors and for a lot of readers, one of the biggest selling points for a book. We want to feel and hear that character there, and you've absolutely got that. How quickly did you find this voice for Sven? I think I thought I had found it. I thought I began with it. But yeah. the beginning was not the beginning that you just heard, uh, which we could talk about. Um, I, initially, the beginning was a, one of those flash forwards to the middle of the novel when he's at his almost nadir 
and um, and there was still some humor in it, but the warmth and empathy that come out of the character throughout the book that grow in the character those were invisible to me at the beginning i really thought this was going to be a story of isolation you know thoughts rebounding in his own head uh, very much a mono long monologue and mm -hmm. um, though it's it still has that effect being a memoir it early on in the book as i introduced the other characters especially his sister and then his 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 niece um aspects of his character in terms of his sense of humor, his warmth, his self-effacement, um, those became more clear to me. And when I eventually went back to write the prologue, and that's something we could talk about, but the, at that point, his character was more firmly established, his voice. Yeah, and so was it your idea to do the prologue? Was it, did someone, did other readers recommend a prologue? I think, um, it was clear to me as as well as my editor early on that that and and this is something I do I think I, I tend to in my earlier drafts what what would end up being the draft that I hand to someone else um, I tend to want to push push the reader through a kind of gauntlet of misery uh, to get to the beginning of the book. And that's not, <laughs> that's not productive. It's maybe, you know, it's counterintuitive. And so I go through this process almost every time. And you know, I, I was ready to accept that something else needed to be there. And, you know, the conversation with my editor came, he, he was hoping for something a little bit more wide ranging and introductory and then I, you know i came up with this idea of him essentially just introducing himself which is about as as basic of a prologue as you can have but right. in terms of whether to have a prologue or not um you know you mentioned before we we started um that maybe prologues are out of fashion that's that's very interesting to me I think maybe I'm just old fashioned or unfashionable, <laughs> but I, I always am thinking of prologues. Maybe I can't shake loose of the idea of prologue and 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 by necessity, an epilogue as a as a bookend. Right, right. Um, I, I actually love them. Mike Wondache is one of my favorite prologue writers because right. um, they're always just these they're, they're this, these kind of storytelling um, setups that he does. And it's, it's kind of what you're doing here as well. And it sets the mood and it sets everything up for us. And we don't feel like we're not starting in the right place. Um, right. And as you talked about, yeah, I am seeing, so we have this um, kind of a little humility. I think you used another word for it, but I was 32 years old and hadn't amounted to much. That at the end of the first paragraph immediately got me and I like this guy <laughs> like I like that I feel this like oh you know <laughs> you know does he feel now that he's amounted too much does he does he you know what does he feel about his life now and so that really got me mm -hmm. and then also there's this kind of ache at the end of the um third paragraph and you write so the age of expiration is long over and if Spitzbergen still dwells in the popular imagination, exists only as a faint echo, a half-remembered word. And there's some, there's a lot of ache and nostalgia there, and and that also immediately invited me in 
um, to him and to, to who he is. Um, and also you're doing this nice trick that a lot of writers out there, first off, you have prologue from a tiny cabin by the ocean. That's all the setting we need. Um, we're immediately in place. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, to some I am known as, and some might have said this about me, and other people might have said this about me, but that's false. So mm -hmm. it's the sense that the reader is entering a story that has already started. Mm -hmm. um, is the reader is entering a story that already exists and that we actually do know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's really, we're already kind of caught up in the pages as we're beginning, even though it is kind of an introduction, we feel like, oh yeah, I'm a part of this world. And mm -hmm. he's hinting to me that I'm a part of this world, even, even though we're not. Um, and so, so much of the prologue is really inviting us in and it's short. Um, and I think that works very well. Now you said, now, why did you choose the memoir form for this? It came naturally with the voice as it developed uh, in terms of both Sven as someone who would uh, there's I don't know I, I just recently finished writing another novel that's close close first and I thought a lot about the difference between this you know fake memoir form and and just standard close first and um, to me it has to do with the sense of the, the the book as as this found artifact type thing and by and so as you mentioned you know needing to draw in quickly whoever might pick it up or find it at the bottom of the trunk or something like that i was invested in this maybe it's a hokey concept but i mean to the point where we even discussed um you know fake aging on the cover and, and something like that that would have been too kitschy but you know what yeah. i mean and i yeah. think that really affected or was affected by sven's voice as both confessional and yet also shaping his narrative according to what he thought was most interesting and and, and as as a self-effacing person who i think would generally consider himself the least interesting person in the room at any given time uh, and always wanting to seed the the stage to the people around him who, who he finds more interesting um, or seed the choices and control of his own life i mean he's that type of person um, but he, as a memoirist, he can still benefit from his position at the center, even if he's sort of pushing the other characters in front of him, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so the, the reflection that he has back on his life, the distance, um, so we have this narrative voice that is different from the, the character because he's looking back in his life. That gives us a lot of narrative distance and a lot of interest, a lot of tension, I feel like. Um, when you're using just the close first in your new book, do you feel kind of limited or kind of, I don't know, imprisoned by that? Uh, slightly, I did slightly. Um, I, I thought I missed some of the freedom of the, of, of Sven as storyteller with yeah. everything that entailed. You know, you, I had to pay much closer attention to the boundaries of, of this more recent work and why was it being told at that moment and where was the narrator and, you know, things like that. And I, and I found myself at times slipping back into 
fictional memoirist mode and had to course correct. Right, right. And then you said you also based this on on someone else's memoir, right? What was his name? Oh, Uh, or he certainly never wrote a memoir. That would have given me ample material. (laughs) Right, right, right. No, all that was known by me for the entirety of the writing project, and I, I since have learned a little bit more, but there's not much known about this guy was uh, that he basically how I introduced the book that he had come from Stockholm in real life he was a plumber as it turns out but um, that he was disfigured in a mining accident and that he removed himself to this fjord where he built the uh, the cabin Rodfjord Hitta and there remained for his years and that's uh, I took that and and there's a wonderful book called A Woman in the Polar Night by Christiana Ritter Mm-hmm. Um, and she references him. Mm. She's, you know, she spends a year or so up there in Svalbard with her husband, and uh, in the thirties, forties, I can't remember. And um, he's sort of, uh, and th- uh, that influenced my my ideas about him as an older man reckoning with his legacy and correcting the myths or whatever, because as, as Ritter describes him, he's this sort of famous figure, although she never gets to meet him. So he's elusive and there's some myths about him, but she never gets to meet him. So that also played a role in how I, how I went after. And that, I mean, it's, it's interesting. For my second novel, I was basing it on um, a true story. And I was working on it when I was doing some book festivals with my first novel. And one of the older writers, he was, he was quite famous. He'd written, I don't know, 10 novels. And I said to him what I was going through with this. With this and I said, well, I can't really find the information, da, da, da. And I said, I don't know if I want to ask. I don't know if I want to know. And he says, you don't. You don't want to know um, because it can close down the imagination. Because I feel when we get sparked by these personalities, we just ha- almost have a picture that we just, just want to run with. Absolutely. And I, I, after the book was written, many months afterward, I finally was able to get hold of a book uh, that I knew gave a little bit more information about the real guy. And it was, you know, this antiquarian bookseller in Norway, not only sent it to me, but translated the relevant passages. And I was, I was struck by self-doubt initially, like, oh, there's all these things that I, that I, if I had known, I would have worked into the story. And I, and I quickly became aware, as you just said, how hamstrung I would have been if I were trying to shoehorn, I'm using strange mixed metaphors here, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. I had tried to integrate that information, it, it would have been so limiting in terms of yeah. the story. Right. And then you also are writing about Stockholm in the 1916 and around that time period. Um, now, a lot of American readers, and you also have sold this novel to be um, uh, translated into many other languages, but it's still a kind of niche area and time period, a lot of historical novelists um, also um, are dealing with having to world build. So how did you handle that from the first pages here? Uh, A great deal of fabrication and... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I never got to Stockholm uh, in terms of my research. Most of the, you know, on the ground research was done in, in Spitsbergen. Um, but, you know, I... <laughs> Some some educated guesswork, let's call it, in terms of world building, Stockholm in that period, and who knows how much of it I got right, frankly. Well, and I think I think the voice provides a lot of it. I mean, I know I know we, there's a lot of readers that might want more specifics, mm -hmm. um, but I feel like the the tenor of the voice gives us so much of the place and almost gives us everything we we really need. Um, now you you go ahead. No, I was just going to say that that stuff was if you know the archaic, slightly archaic tone and maybe slightly more flowery language and things like that. Uh, that all that was informed by you know my years of extensive reading of polar narratives of people like Nansen and Amundsen and and then the many many British explorers and also just you know books from earlier times, you know, I read a lot of Patrick O'Brien and yeah. Dickens and that influence, you know, all that stuff right. kind of gets into your blood. But you were also this uh, resident in the Arctic Circle Expeditionary Program that must have influenced the voice and your ability to create this world. Certainly, I couldn't, I couldn't have written it without having been there and been a part of that program. I'd been looking for years for a way to the the polar regions, north or south, I would have gone anywhere. Couldn't afford to go as a tourist, and that would have been prohibitively confining and constraining. And was fortunate enough to find this artist residency. Uh, it's twenty-something artists aboard a traditionally rigged tall ship, and it's nice. still very much an active residency. Uh, they do two or three voyages a year. It's about two and a half weeks, and. Uh, I happened to be the only writer aboard that year. Most were painters, visual artists, musicians, and um, I mean, invaluable. Just as as someone who, who got his start in nature writing, that me, yeah. um, I really, I need to, for my primary setting, I need to be on the ground. I need to smell it and hear it and see what the wildlife is doing or the lack of wildlife or whatever the case may be. And without that, you know, my powers of invention are too too limited. Yeah. Well, I think too, it allows you to feel the place kind of had a bodily sense of it because you've been there. And I think that's always the key when you're trying to write about a place that you didn't grow up in or, or even other identities is to, to feel that place and that existence in the body. Mm -hmm. And being in the Arctic would be quite extreme. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think that's why I love books about the Arctic because I can feel that and yet I'm still snug and warm. <laughs> where I am and I can escape it uh, where, wherever I am. Um, okay, was it then, was it difficult for you to find this prologue or difficult to kind of adjust to this new thing since you'd probably been working on the book for a little while? It was less difficult to write than it was to let go of what had been there, um, which mm -hmm. I was deeply attached to and, and partly at least because 
I've been sitting on the, the original prologue. If, I'm not sure if I would have called it a prologue at that point as much as a, a flash forward, but um, I've been sitting on it for something like eight years. You know, I really, I'd, I'd made very little progress on the novel for a period of years and just had stared at those first two pages because I liked them. And that was, the, you know, I wrote them yeah. right as soon as I came back from this expedition, I was inspired. And then I got wrapped up with other things. And so I didn't want them to be gone. And so eventually I, I had to do the cheating thing of mashing them <laughs> to the story where really where they belonged. Um, and right. I'm happy now with where they are. I w there's still a part of me that liked, I always, I like beginnings that kind of grab hold of the reader and um, shake them a little, but I, I realize that that's not, a, not everyone's cup of tea. And, um, and then a lot of people don't make it past that point. If they get shaken too hard, or <laughs> they find the, the, the experience of being shaken unpleasant, uh, then they'll just stop reading. And so something that to draw the reader in, I could, I got behind it. Um, and I liked the very straightforward, you know, almost, you know, re ref almost referencing, you know, call me Ishmael type of thing, um, yeah. as audacious as that is. But just here, here I am, here's my name. That ended up feeling right to me. And, and once I got past removing my old prologue, it, it went smoothly. Good. I mean, though it makes me want to read those earlier pages, but... Um... <laughs> I, I usually talk to students because because I I yeah I work over my first pages so much and it's just my own neuroticism that I have <laughs> have it memorized and then right. I tell people it's like trying to take down a you know a twelve story brick wall with a toothpick like it's, it feels <laughs> impossible to replace that um, and but you were able to let go of it the more you put yourself into the new prologue yes and and it, oh it seems to be that my pattern is that I can't be the one to make that call. Uh, whether it's my wife, who's my first editor, or, or the professional editor at, at the publishing house, someone has to say to me, no, you need a new pro, you need a new, a new beginning. And I always know it's coming, <laughs> and I'm yeah. braced for it, and I don't know what, I, what I'm going to do with that, but I need someone else to say it. And so, for example, I, I have this novel I wrote years ago before Sven that's still unpublished and it's still sitting there with the original beginning that I know if it ever sees the light of day we'll have a new beginning <laughs> because right. somebody's going to say no no you're it's wrong and it's sort of a cliche you know if you've been to writing workshops or done an MFA or something like that they always tell you change the beginning it's, it's like <laughs> and they're usually right um I don't know yeah yeah, yeah. Or your beginning is on page 200 um, <laughs> right. and you have to cut 200 pages. Oh, yeah, God. exactly. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> um, I had an instructor in college and he had uh, edited his 800 book, 800 uh, page book down to about 300 pages. And I was oh, college, God. I was college age at the time. And he told the class this and I was like, I was so indignant. I was like, you gave in to the man. You gave in to the powers that be. I was so pissed off. And now I'm like, now I'm like, yep, I get that. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs>
yeah the wis the wisdom of failure okay we're right. gonna have to get our writers back to their uh, writing desks but for everyone else you can find our full passages of summer schedule on our substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com subscribe there for updates you can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page including episodes from our past two writing challenges as well as any of your uh, as well as any of these episodes on your favorite podcast platforms and if you like what we're doing please follow rate and review our podcast so that we can find other listeners. Okay, Nathaniel, after going through all these difficult beginnings, what would you, what advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? Well, in light of what we've been saying, I, I would, I would only say that don't, don't spend too much time worrying about them because they're going to have to be changed <laughs> at a later yeah. date. That's my only yeah. advice. Yeah, you don't want to be facing the brick wall with a toothpick. Right. It's really, really painful. Okay. All right, everybody. Let's get you to your writing desk. Don't build the brick wall. Just keep writing forward. And I wish you all good luck. And thanks again to Manu for being with us. I'm very excited about this book. Thanks, Michelle.